on this prequel episode, we're breaking down the Brokeback Mountain Pole, learning about constructed language, and previewing The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Well, welcome back to this film's lit podcast for Taiwan movies that are based on books. On this prequel episode, we have a few different topics. Let's just get right into it and talk about what our viewers slash listeners thought about Brokeback Mountain, which wasn't much. Uh, yeah, there's not really much to go over <laughs> here. Um, we got very few votes. This is probably our worst turnout yet. Yeah. Um, and it's not terribly surprising. Um I think this is probably one that a lot of people didn't know was based on a short story. Um, And unlike, say, Rear Window, Brokeback Mountain is not in the public domain. So you couldn't just, like, look up a PDF and read the story real quick. Um, But the votes that we did get uh, unanimously preferred the movie. So there you go. go. Cool. Yeah. Our episode did pretty well in general. Yeah. You know, so, like, in terms of listen. So it's not like nobody listened to the episode. But, yeah, I think it's just like you said. Nobody knew it was based on a story. And I, you know, in a way, I appreciate everyone's integrity of like not not voting voting if you haven't (laughs) read and seen both. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Anyways. All right. Let's move on to our learning things segment where we're talking about constructed language. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. All right. Um, So uh, within the framework of Lord of the Rings and the entire Middle Earth um, collective, collection, canon, (laughs) um, perhaps one of the things that I think Tolkien is most famous for is the creation of fictional languages. Definitely. It's one of the things people always like to mention yeah it's you know oh did you know actually he was a linguist and blah blah blah. it's one of the fun funnest fun facts one of the funnest fun facts about (laughs) J.R.R. Tolkien um but he is hardly the first person to do it Mm -hmm. uh constructing language actually has a long history in literature um Thomas More's Utopia um published in 1516 and Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels published in 1726 are two other notable examples that predate Tolkien. Mm -hmm. Um, So he's just really well known for doing this. He didn't like invent it. Um, And in fact, uh, something that I learned that I did not realize, um, his invented languages actually predate his fictional world and stories. Um, He's quoted as saying, the invention of languages is the foundation. The stories were made rather to provide a world for the languages than the reverse. Hmm. So he made up languages, and then he was like, you know what? I want people to speak these languages. I'm going to write a dope story. Yeah, he made up a world, (laughs) which is an interesting way to go about doing it. Very interesting way to go about it, especially to then go go about creating one of the most deep and, like, yeah. Um complete fantasy worlds um, ever created. There was another quote that I don't have it in my notes, so I'll just like uh give you the paraphrase. gist of it. I'll paraphrase it. Um that was about like if you create a rich enough language, the mythology will follow and then the world will follow. So Okay. If he says so. Everybody's got their own system, I guess. Um, Anyway, uh, Tolkien had maybe one of the best possible backgrounds for this task. A couple facts about him. He studied Latin and Anglo-Saxon in his childhood. Which I don't think that was super uncommon back then. No, no, not at all. Not at all. 
Um, he studied the English language and literature in college. Uh, he worked for the Oxford English Dictionary after the First World War, mostly on word history and etymology. Mm -hmm. um, he taught at Oxford as a professor of Anglo-Saxon and then later as a Merton professor of English language and literature. Um, he also did the definitive translations of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and Beowulf, hmm. among other slightly lesser well-known translations. Um, and another interesting side note is that he was actually approached to potentially be a codebreaker during World War II. Hmm. Um, he didn't end up doing that. They didn't need him. Um, but he was like on their short list. Gotcha. For like somebody who knew enough about linguistics. Yeah. However... Tolkien's interest in constructed language actually goes back to his early teens when he discovered that his cousins, um, Mary and Marjorie Inselden, I think might be how it's pronounced, yeah, yeah. Um, had invented a language called animalic. Hmm. So his um, kind of interest in it thought to date back to that kind of like childhood experience. Hmm. Um, and he actually later came up with a couple other languages, like along with his cousins, cool. close to that time. Um, so while around a dozen languages are mentioned throughout Lord of the Rings, um, Tolkien only fully developed two of them. Kenya, I think might be how it's pronounced, um, and Sindarin. Mm -hmm. um, so Kenya is like the Elvish Latin. Um, yeah. So all of the other Elvish languages descend from that. Yeah. Um, and then Sindarin is the most spoken Elvish yeah. language throughout Tolkien's Whenever, text. Yeah. When yeah. you see it, Elvish written, it's probably Sindarin. Yeah, probably Sindarin. Or a derivative of yeah. it. Um, now, while the term constructed language kind of makes it sound like Tolkien built his languages from the ground up, that's actually not quite the case. Um, he leaned a lot on the knowledge of languages that he already had, which, as we know, was extensive. Yeah, and that's how most languages that are created for yeah. things yeah. these days, that's how it works. They don't just... No, not at all. Yeah. Um, I, I just I do think the term constructed language is right. maybe a little bit misleading. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to go into that. Um, so he leaned on the knowledge that he already had. Um, Kenya relies on the grammatical principles of Finnish, um, while Sindarin is based on Welsh. Mm -hmm. um, then the language of Rohan is essentially a dressed up cameo by Old English. Um, and while a lot of other languages are mentioned, um, for example, Dwarvish, um, and then the Black Speech of Mordor, um, Tolkien only created like what he needed yeah. of those languages, like linguistic bits and pieces. He didn't fully flesh right. every single language out. Um, so out of this, then, we get maybe one of the most esoteric debates within the literary slash linguistic circles. Um, did Tolkien actually construct any languages? Um, if you go by a somewhat liberal definition uh, that he constructed some words and grammar structure, then yes. Yes, he absolutely did. Um, if you go by stricter definitions, though, maybe not. Um, uh, Kenya and Sindarin are considered complete because Tolkien invented enough of them for them to be functional, but you can't translate any text into these languages because they lack niche vocabulary. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, fair enough. 
Um, yeah. Real languages are the way they are because they develop organically over time and hundreds and hundreds of thousands upon thousands of speakers. And while Tolkien did revise and grow his languages, um, there's really only so much one dude can do, uh, regardless of how obsessed he is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so while I mentioned earlier that Tolkien was hardly the first writer to construct languages to go along with his fictional world, um, he is one of the writers most known for it. And that has had a ripple effect throughout both the academic and the pop culture worlds. Mm -hmm. um, so we have, you know, fictional languages like Star Trek's Klingon, Avatar's Navi, um, and most notably, we have Game of Thrones, Dothraki, and High Valyrian, which, knowing the extent to which author George R. R. Martin was influenced by Tolkien, arguably might not exist without Tolkien's initial work. Yeah, I think that's safe to say. Yeah, um, which then kind of brings me to the academic side of things. Um, you can take a whole-ass college course to learn Elvish as a foreign language, and that's, I think, been pretty common for a while. Mm -hmm. um, but thanks to that trailblazing, you have the same opportunities now with other more recent construction constructed languages. Um, for example, in 2017, Berkeley gave Dothraki its own foreign language course. Yep. <laughs> Um, so this is really just dipping a toe into the water of this topic. Yeah. Um, like I said, Tolkien was obsessed. Um, so it's worth looking further into if this interests you, because really, no matter how you slice it, this is fascinating. It really is. Cool. All right. Well, that was a little a little primer. Primer? I never know which way <laughs> you're supposed to pronounce that. On constructed languages and the world of Middle Earth. Let's move on and talk about... The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, the book. The fate of the world will soon be decided. The dominion of evil grows even stronger. There is a union now between the two towers. Barador, fortress of the Dark Lord Sauron, and Orthanc. Stronghold of the wizard Saruman. All right, so The Two Towers is the second volume of yeah. Tolkien's high fantasy novel, The Lord of the Rings. Again, we mentioned it before, but they're not actually three. So yeah. Not technically three. They're sold that way. Yes. But in his head, it is one tome, several. Right. One tome made up of six books. Yeah. So this is volume two, um, and it was initially published in 1954. Mm -hmm. um, this covers books three and four of that original six-book vision yep. that he had. Um, about the title, uh, Tolkien wrote, The Two Towers gets as near as possible to finding a title to cover the widely divergent books three and four and can be left ambiguous. Um, so it doesn't give too much away. Yeah. Um, now, book three, um, in case anybody's not familiar, uh, book three covers what Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli did following the events of Fellowship of the Ring, while book four then catches up with Frodo and Sam on their quest to Mordor. Yeah. Um, now, early editions of The Two Towers were published without the two books' subtitles. Um, the book that I got from the library, which is copyright 1965... Um, is doesn't have any subtitles. Huh. It's just book three and book four. Um, but book three is titled The Treason of Isengard, 
And book four is usually titled The Ring Goes East, but it has also been titled The Journey of the Ring Bearers. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Much like Fellowship, Two Towers garnered a lot of praise upon publication. Uh, The New York Times gave it a positive review, calling it an extraordinary work, pure excitement, unencumbered narrative, moral warmth, barefaced rejoicing in beauty, but excitement most of all. Mm -hmm. Um, However, some criticism was levied at Tolkien's style. Um, For example, critic Anthony Boucher, Boucher? I don't yeah, know. I don't know. Boucher. Um, Boucher could be. Uh, he noted that The Two Towers makes inordinate demands upon the patience of its readers with passages which could be lopped away without affecting form or content. Um, he also said some positive stuff, but I, I thought that comment in particular was funny. Uh, having just finished the Treebeard chapter, I can agree. <laughs> all right, so that's all I have in the way of book facts. Yep. Cool. All right, let's talk about uh, Two Towers, the film. The peril of the Ringbearer deepens. An unseen danger draws closer. For there is another who hunts the ring. Yes! This story, my precious, and we want it! Two Towers is a 2002 film. It's the second installment in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It's all the same crew and actors and everybody, all that sort of thing. Uh, It was filmed, like we said last time, concurrently with the other movies. Some of the segments in it were shot before some of the stuff Mm. in Fellowships, most of it after. Um, Just kind of depend on what they were shooting and where and when. But they filmed all three of the films in about a two-year span uh, from like 2000 to 2002 or something like that. I, I have it in my the last prequel. Um, so, uh, some interesting things about this movie, though. Helm's Deep was the first structure that artist Alan Lee, Alan Lee is an uh, artist who does uh, work in novels as well as like conceptual art for film. He's probably most known for uh, his most notable works are several of uh, J.R. Tolkien's novels, including uh, collections of The Lord of the Rings, where he did um, uh, novel art for them inside. Um, he was tasked to, des- tasked to design Helm's Deep when he signed on to the film. Uh, at 135th scale, it was one of the first miniatures built, and it was part of the 45-minute video that sold the project to New Line. I mentioned there was a video that they went when they were trying to shop it around mm-hmm. when uh, uh, the Weinstein, whoever, yeah, yeah, whatever yeah. company, um, pulled out. Yeah. Miramax? I don't know. Whatever. Um, and they went around and eventually sold it to New Line, and Helmsteep was part of the thing that sold that they sold it on. Uh, it's a pivotal part of the story, obviously. It was built at Dry Creek Quarry with a gate. It had the gate that you see in the movie, a Mm -hmm. ramp, and a wall with a removable section. I assume that's the part that gets blown away later on. And they had a tower on the second level. Most importantly, there was a one-fourth scale miniature of Helm's Deep that ran 50 feet wide. And it was used for force perspective shots as well as when they blow up the wall. They blew up this little Mm -hmm. miniature one-quarter scale. Uh Another random fact that everybody has heard about this movie is that Viggo Mortensen broke two of his toes when he kicked an orc helmet in the scene where they find the dead Urukai and they think that the hobbits are dead. Merry and Pippin are also dead. Wow, his boots weren't shit. Yeah, well, it's a metal helmet and he's wearing, I assume, somewhat, yeah. you know, like leather, yeah. like not particularly sturdy leather boots of some sort. Uh, he kicked the metal helmet and uh, broke two of his toes and that takes the one that's in the film, according to everybody. <laughs> Uh, it wasn't the only injury on set. Orlando Bloom fell off his horse at one point and cracked three of his ribs. 
and uh, John Rhys Davies didn't do most of the stuff in Rohan at the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. It was his stunt double because it's a shorter actor right, doing yeah. playing Gimli, uh, whose name is Brett Beatty, and he dislocated his knee. And so there's several scenes where they're running, chasing, you know, following, running through the distance, trying to f- track the orcs down, where they're like all three of the people are just like brutally injured in some way. <laughs> so that's fun stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the Rohirrim capital of Edoras took six months to build on Mount Sunday, which is they actually built Edoras on a mountain in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had to do all kinds of stuff to preserve the natural habitat with like moving plants into greenhouses to Gosh. like store them and then bringing them back and all this nonsense. Um, but that was only for the exteriors, literally, because all uh, the interiors were all shot in a studio. So, like, right. in the halls and all that were shot in studio. But the exterior shots you see were all shot on top of that Mount Sunday in New Zealand. Hmm. On Miranda Otto's uh, first day, which Miranda Otto plays Eowyn, mm-hmm. uh, first day of shooting, she showed up. And Liv Tyler was said to have welcomed her with enthusiastic open arms, saying, I'm so glad there's another woman in this film. Uh, <laughs> riff. <laughs> I love these movies, but they do not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, they don't pass the Bacadell test, no. that's for sure. No. Ah. No. 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 You're right. <laughs> Definitely not. I was trying to think if there's a scene where Galadriel talks to, like, Arwen about, like, something interesting, but probably not. Okay. Um, Brad Dourif, who plays uh, Wormtongue, shaved off his eyebrows and used uh, dried potato flakes as dandruff in his hair to make him look extra greasy and gross. Gross. <laughs> yep. Uh, the Battle of Helm's Deep filmed for, depending on the resource or the sources I found, anywhere between three to four months, mm. which is pretty nuts. Uh, I think the recently the, the the you know there was the big discussion about the Long Night episode of Game of Thrones, and I think that filmed. Something similar, like mm-hmm. two months or something like that. It sounds exhausting. Uh, and all at night, obviously, because it all takes place at night, except for like the last very end of and it. And like when I hear fun facts like that, like logically, I know that that means that they filmed every like during the day and then like stopped and went to sleep. But when well, no, I hear they filmed that, at night and then w- stopped and went to whichever. sleep. Yeah. But like I hear that and my brain thinks. That they just like filmed nonstop for yeah. three months yeah. for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And I'm sure a lot of it, you know, it's if it's raining now, we can't, you know, it probably right. took three months, yeah. but who knows how many actual nights they filmed or yeah. that sort of thing. Uh, so, for, so, we got a couple of random other facts about Helm's Deep. Uh, they couldn't recruit enough men that were taller than six foot to play Urukai in the movie. Because they needed a bunch of extras to be Urukai. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they had men, you know, that were around five foot tall that were also cast, and they were affectionately nicknamed Uruk Low, oh. which I thought was funny <laughs> instead of Urukai. <laughs> uh,. The 10,000 Urukai battle chants at Helm's Deep, where they all start screaming before the battle starts, they doing like their battle chant. That was actually recorded at a 25,000 person cricket stadium full mm-hmm. of people uh, where they chanted the war chants. They had them spelled out on the big screen, mm-hmm. and uh, Peter Jackson was there like directing them to do it, <laughs> which I thought was interesting. Uh, so the orcs have black blood throughout the movies that we see, and I assume that's described in the books. I don't remember that so far, but I'm There's sure probably maybe a mention probably of it. Mention yeah. of it. Um, and it was only natural, they assumed there, that the inside of their mouths wouldn't be pink, but would be mm-hmm. black or something as well. And to do this, they had them uh, swill around licorice, licorice-based mouthwash prior to the scenes. <laughs> so they had to, like, uh, yeah, bleach, or not bleach, but dye their mouths yeah. black with licorice 
before they filmed it. Helps him get into the <laughs> character of just being like, yeah, right, angry. Uh, Weta Studios, who's the people who did all of the practical effects and all the effects works on the movies, uh, they began animating uh, and the the CGI effects. They began animating Golem uh, in late 1998, so well before the movies mm. ever started filming, yeah. to convince New Line that they could do it. Originally, Golem was set to solely be a CG character, but when they cast Andy Serkis, when looking at his audition tape, tape, Peter Jackson was so impressed that they decided to use him on set to actually come in and act. Uh, because one of the things I read is that uh, originally when he auditioned for the part, his agent, Andy Serkis' agent, was like, hey, do you want to do like three weeks of voice acting in New Zealand? And he's mm-hmm. like, yeah, sure. And then, yeah, they he ended up getting roped into being in all, you know, <laughs> a year and a half worth of the filming uh, because he was in all of the scenes. And they filmed all of his scenes twice, one with Andy Serkis in this in playing Gollum mm-hmm. and then one without him. So they had a clean hmm. version to put Gollum into it. And as, as speaking of Gollum's voice, Andy Serkis said that he based it on the sound of a cat coughing up a hairball. Which makes sense because the golem yeah. is a thing in his throat. You know, uh, Albus coughed up a hairball earlier. Yeah. And I gotta say, yeah. I can hear it. You can hear it. It makes sense. Yeah. yeah. They also redesigned uh, Gollum's uh, character to look more like Andy Circus. So the version you see in um, Fellowship of the Ring is slightly different than mm-hmm. the version that is in The Two Towers. And because they hadn't cast Andy Circus yet, from what it sounds oh. like. And so when they or or either they had cast him, but just to do the voice at that point, and then it was a little muddy from the several th- different things I found. But basically, once they decided that he was actually going to play Smeagol mm-hmm. and be the live action version as well, they went back and they tweaked Gollum to look like more mm-hmm. like Andy Serkis as Smeagol mm-hmm. instead of just like sort of the whatever they had come up with originally. It wasn't too different, but it was just a little tweaks. Um, so there's a moment in the two towers where Frodo and Sam end up in Osgiliath mm-hmm. and Sam has a line. He says, by rights, we shouldn't even be here. Uh, the reason that lines in the movie, it was a nod to the fact that this uh, is a pretty strong deviation from the book mm-hmm. because in the book, they never get to Osgiliath. So that yeah. line of him by rights, we shouldn't even be here is <laughs> a reference to the book. The fact that they're never there in the book. A couple more interesting facts. Treebeard, uh, took between 28 and 48 hours per frame to render, which is straight up nutty, which animation is like that anyways, but it's an obscene amount. If you, cause so, so here's a little bit of math for you. Uh, there are 28 frames, roughly. Mm-hmm. I assume they should, or sorry, 24 frames, roughly, in a second of film. Mm-hmm. Uh, assuming that's how they shot because in later movie like I know on like the Hobbit Peter Jackson shot at 60 frames so it could be but generally speaking in traditional film 24 frames per second so let's say 30 hours mm-hmm. to render one frame so 30 times 24 <laughs> one second of Treebeard <laughs> is is what I don't have I do have my phone hold on I'll do it right here real quick nope don't don't play don't play audio <laughs> 30 times 24. That's 720 hours. Oh, yeah. So it's 30 days. <sighs> 30 days per one second, which seems nuts. But they used to render that stuff overnight while they weren't mm-hmm. there. So. 
It's pretty nuts. Uh, for scenes where he interacts with Marion Pippin, a 14-foot-tall puppet was built on a wheel to move around with him. Uh, <laughs> and this, I did not know, John Rhys Davies provided the voice for Treebeard. Hmm, I didn't know Gimli that either. provided yeah. the voice for Treebeard. And it apparently wasn't achieved by electronic distortion, but, he's, but by just having the actor speak in his naturally booming voice at the lowest pitch possible through a wooden megaphone. Oh, so we get that woody sound. I guess. Which <laughs> I, that's wild to me. And I did not know. I somehow yeah, I missed no that forever that the Gimli was also Treebeard. So this film was nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Art Direction, Best Editing, and Best Sound. And it won for Best Visual Effects and Best Sound Editing. Nice. Um, but Return of the King is when it really, the, yeah. the, the awards really pick up. And it was the highest grossing film of 2002. It is adjusted for inflation, or since it came out, it's made pretty close to a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. It's like nine hundred and eighty-two million, or something like that, so far. Not bad. Um, or I say so far. I don't know if that was over. So I just saw a nine hundred eighty-two million dollar number. That's not how much it made with <laughs> the year it came out. But um, anyways, it was the highest grossing film that year. It makes it one of the highest grossing films of all time. So that was it for the fun facts about uh, and the preview of Lord of the Rings: The Two Towers. You can listen to our main episode exactly one week from today. Until that time, you can do us a favor and rate and review us on all the major uh, podcast providers that you can find us. Caveat it with that because don't know where all we're available. And you can follow us on all of the social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Goodreads, and Reddit. We have a subreddit. So look us up. Uh, yeah, that's all I need. Until next time, guys, y'all, non-binary, and everybody else. Keep reading books. Keep watching movies. And keep being awesome. awesome.